Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the business of cannabis. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg talk with the CEOs, politicians, and cultural icons driving the cannabis industry forward. This week is another conference episode. A few weeks ago, Lewis hosted a panel at the Cannabis World Congress and Business Expo in Los Angeles that featured a slew of our past guests, including Chris Crane from Forefront Ventures, Tahira Ramatula from Emtech, and Beth Stavola from MPX Bioceuticals. The conversation is a rollicking one and not to be missed. So don't sit back, lean forward. And now on to our panel discussion with Lewis, Chris, Tahira, and Beth. You guys are in for a treat uh, because I am joined on stage today by um, three, would have been four, but William couldn't make it, three of the smartest people in the, the cannabis industry. Um, wow. We've got Chris Crane from Forefront Ventures, um, we've got Tahira Ramatula from MTech and Beth Stavola from MPX Bioceuticals. Um, I would love it if each of you, Chris, first, just take a moment, introduce yourself, um, and just say a little bit about what your company is and does, and then we'll get into the, the real questions. That way everybody can know who's saying what. Sure. Thanks, well, thanks for having me here today. Can everyone hear fine? I don't think we really need the microphones, but... Um, <laughs> Hold on. So Turn it. your mic on. Is it on? Is Not yours on? on? It's and on. Mine's on, I think. Yeah. Hello, hello. There, there we go. Or something. Okay. I can talk loud, too, uh, <laughs> if that's easier. Um, so my name is Chris Crane. I'm the president of Forefront Ventures. Um, just with a little bit of background, I've spent uh, over 20 years uh, working on cannabis, the first half of or, or more in the policy uh, realm. So I was the associate director at Normal in D.C. for six years. I was the executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And, made the move into the industry in late 2009 uh, when the industry was very, very new. Um, so, <clears throat> but, <coughs> excuse me, been at this about as long as anyone on the business side. Uh, Forefront Ventures, we have a consulting wing, Forefront Advisors, which uh, we started in 2011, where we've worked with uh, applicants and operators around the country. Um, and we have our operations wing, which is sort of the bulk of what we do today, where we, uh, we are licensed to cultivate, dispense, produce, uh, in four states currently, applications pending and a handful of others, um, and we are in the process of getting publicly listed up in Canada by the end of this year, which I think is a lot of what we'll be talking about here. Uh, so uh, yeah, thanks again for having me here. And Tahira? Uh, my name's Tahira. I'm CFO of MTech Acquisition Corp, which is a special purpose acquisition company, otherwise called a SPAC. Uh, it's a shell company that's listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, that we IPO'd in January. It's, we raised $50 million. Um, and the way that SPACs work, which we'll get into a little bit more, is that they're shell companies with the whole intent that you bet on the industry and the management team. So we're the first SPAC that is listed uh, specifically to focus on the cannabis industry. So we intend to take an ancillary cannabis business public um, with a target to close by the end of this year. And, and Beth. Yes, thank you for that kind introdu introduction, Lewis. Um, I am Chief Operating, I'm Beth Stavola, I'm Chief Operating Officer and President of U.S. Operations of MPX Bioceutical Corporation. Um, we were one of the first uh, RTOs uh, to, to uh, RTO U.S. assets, U.S. cannabis assets, into a Canadian shell. So we did that in, uh, in January of 2017. Um, since then, we've made about six acquisitions uh, across the country and also acquired an LP in, uh, in Canada in the last uh, several months. Um, you know, the thought there is to really be able to participate in the international market given that, uh, you know, there are other countries that are, are opening up import-export opportunities and uh, we feel as if we can bring our U.S. brands or MPX concentrates, MPX edibles, use all of our IP in Canada, of course, not be crossing the border with the, <laughs> the product, but just, just be using our, our IP. Um, and it, it'll be exciting to be able to, you know, be shipping, uh, you know, our brands to, you know, whether it's Germany or, or Australia, there's uh, a lot of opportunity there. So, Tahira. Um, You've got MPX, who trades on the Canadian Stock Exchange. Um, you've got Forefront, who will probably eventually trade on the Canadian Stock Exchange. You have a publicly listed cannabis company, kind of. Ish. Ish. <laughs> but you're on the NASDAQ. Right. Right? Um, how'd you do that? 
Sure. So the reason why we opted, I mean, partial reason to, the op to go for ancillary businesses is because those are businesses that you can list in the U.S. Um, nobody has tried to list on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ yet. But most of the companies that have IPO'd in the U.S. Uh, are on uh, OTC. Um, so we saw an opportunity not only to fund a company that could then grow into a much larger platform and accelerate its growth, but we saw an opportunity to also highlight, particularly in the U.S., all of these other businesses that have de developed in cannabis that support the industry. And so what most people think about is cultivation, um, you know, the actual end product, but because of the way U.S. legislation has developed or not developed, um, the industry has been required to create all of these different platforms, so technology, you know, different software, um, services, consulting, all of these different businesses, and we saw a really strong opportunity to take one of those businesses or, and start a roll-up that we'd be able to put on the NASDAQ. So, Beth, you're uh, uh, listed in Canada. Right. Um, but I'm sure you aspire to be just like Tahira and a NASDAQ-listed company. Absolutely. I'll, I'll be one of the first ones that's uh, online to be listed um, uh, on the NASDAQ or potentially the New York Stock Exchange. I, and I actually just heard something that really surprised me this morning when we were talking about this, is that um, the New York Stock Exchange seems to be a little bit more... Uh, friendly to, to, to the thought of doing this, which is interesting because just, um, you know, just back in January, a friend of mine is the CEO of, of one of the big REITs, and um, we all probably know that there was one REIT that did go public uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, and they were, my friend was, was slotted to, to go public shortly after that. And there must have been, you know, the thought is there must have been some kind of a call from someone at the DOJ to potentially the New York Stock Exchange's um, general counsel that said you've done one, but you probably don't want to do another one. Um, so they, you know, they got waitlisted. So it was interesting because they don't touch the plant at all. They only own the real estate and, you know, and, and rent it to people like me. So, Chris, there are, you are amongst many companies that are hurtling towards a, a public listing. Um, and you guys recently raised, over the last year or so, about $20 million. Um, are you finding that, it's, that we're seeing investor fatigue? You know, is it harder to raise money now, or is there still this just insatiable appetite for U.S. companies? So, it's always hard to raise money. Um, to, I mean, just to, to, to preface what I'm saying with like, it's, it's not easy. Um, it's really hard. It's a massive grind um, uh, raising capital in this industry, no matter what the enthusiasm level is. Mm -hmm. That said, um, it's easier today than we've ever seen it. Um, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm for U.S.-based companies, particularly multi-state operators in the United States amongst uh, public sector investors in particular, um, mm. and particularly those who invest in public sector companies in Canada. Um, last week or two weeks ago now, um, as part of our, we're doing a pre-RTO raise. Um, so we plan to go public later this year. We're doing our last round now. And so our bank up in Canada took us on, it's called a roadshow. It was quite an experience. I've never done something quite like that before. It was like 25 meetings in, in four days in mm -hmm. two cities. Um, that is a grind. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, they have like a car waiting yeah. for you outside every meeting, taking you to the next one. It's, uh, you yeah, know, Beth knows, Beth knows the deal oh, much better I, than I do. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you both do, actually. This is, this is new for me. Um, but it was, it was interesting. I mean, what the investors were saying over and over and over again is that they are really hungry for multi-state U.S. operators. And I think part of the reason is almost all these investors put money into Canadian LPs fairly early on. Um, so they've done quite well with, you know, with companies like Canopy and Tilray and some of these other ones that are getting a lot of headlines. I think they also realize that the valuations for a lot of these Canadian LPs are not really sustainable right now. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you mean, you mean Tilray's revenue? You mean when Tilray hits it's 300 is in 90 now? now. <laughs> With negative $28 million in net revenue. It's yeah. amazing. I, it's um, just math. Yes, it's just math. You know, and if you look, at, you look at a canopy, you know, just three years ago, that was two separate companies. It was a $300 million sure. company, which was Tweed, and an $80 million company, which was Bedrocan. And uh, what is it, a $15 billion company About, right now, yeah. three years later. So that is just, in, it just outrageously incredible growth. And it reminds me a lot of when um, I worked on Wall Street. I sold a lot of internet deals, a lot, all kinds of deals. But 
um, a, a lot of internet deals. And it was interesting, because in 1999, you really couldn't get anybody who was a plain vanilla, whether it's an Oppenheimer Funds or, or you know, an Alliance Capital or a TIA, a craft that we were talking about, mm -hmm. to even look at these. And they, you know, the, the attitude really back then was, no one's going to trade on, you know, no one's going to trade online or, you know, <laughs> internet, schminternet. Um, and it was really the scrappy hedge funds that were were buying up these these early you know early stage companies, and I think we're, we're starting to see some of that, you know, in our industry now. Yeah. So, I mean, just to, to fin I mean, to finish the thought, what we're seeing is so you're seeing these investors who have made a lot of money on these Canadian LPs over the last few years, and they're starting to cash out. I mean, it's relatively small amounts, and putting those instead into U.S. operators because mm. what they're seeing is the U.S. U.S.-based operators don't have those kind of crazy valuations. Um, right. Some, you may argue, are, are overvalued, but by and large, the US companies are valued substantially lower than their Canadian counterparts, so they can take some of those profits they made in Canada and make those same bets on US, US operators, which they think are you know, three years or so behind. And when you look at it, you know, the population of Canada is less than the population of California. So when they're looking at you know, what's the next big boom here, it's probably US-based companies. And, and they're making the bet on U.S.-based multi-state multi operations. So you guys have all had to go out and raise capital in different mm -hmm. forms or another. And, and historically, when, company, when industries are, are young, you get angel and venture capital rounds. And, and they usually come from institutions. It's, it's, a most, it's mostly high net worth, but a lot of institutions come in. You have VC funds that are coming in. That is not the case in the cannabis industry. It is almost exclusively funded by either family offices or super high net worth individuals. Um, at what point do you think that we see a change? And to here, I want to start with you on this. Um, when do we start to see institutions come in, um, not necessarily from a public company investment perspective, but on, on, like if they were going to want to invest in Chris or other private companies, mm -hmm. when do we get to see the institutions start to play? So I think we're already seeing a little bit of it. I mean, an example is you know like Tilray. They say they had some institutional investors in their pre-IPO round. So I think in, in that round is where you're starting to see a little bit more comfort because they're being underwritten by banks. Banks, which is the biggest, one of the biggest issues in the U.S., right? You don't have people, you don't have banks who are willing to underwrite the industry, take that risk. Cowan is one that's kind of led the way, and I believe Tilray was the first deal that they did to, to IPO a company. Um, but they, no, were, they the were on the med relief deal as well, the okay. initial med relief offering. So, but they were the only ones, really, yes. right? And I, I mean, I know people at Goldman, at JP. I'm like, when are you guys going to get into this? And they just can't get it through compliance, and that's going to continue to be an issue. But even in our uh, raise for MTech. We started, I mean, we have some hedge fund investors, we have venture capital. So you're starting to see that now. Some of them are US, some of them are Canadian. So you have that mix as well. And obviously, Canada has a very different tolerance um, because they understand the landscape so much better and they look at it through a very different lens because of that federal legality. But I think we're starting to see the shift. I do think it's going to be slow. We're not going to see these massive institutions come in quite yet because you know, they have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that they are obeying all the laws and protecting all of their investors. And that is a, there's constantly that federal risk. So, so it's starting to shift. But so Chris, on your roadshow, you're seeing a mix of people. What kind of reaction are you getting from the institutions? Um, so the, the Without violating the, anything that you can't violate. Sure. Well, I will say most of the folks that we're meeting with are not institutions. Um, I mean, they're, they're public sector investors or family offices, although mm -hmm. I would say... Um, in about two weeks or so, maybe a little less, there's, there, there, I would on fairly good authority, there's going to be a pretty big oh, announcement fairly. of uh, a major institutional um, uh, investment firm out of, out of New York, uh, mm -hmm. brand named institutional investment, not a spinoff investment, but you know, real uh, endowment money, pension money um, that will be going into a, a pretty large debt deal. Uh, in the industry, it should make waves when it happens. I can't Ooh. speak to who it is or who they'll be funding. Well, you, uh, jump, you jumped my question, man. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but keep an eye out for that in the next couple of weeks. This will be a, a name brand New York institution that uh, will be making the first plunge into, into cannabis. So uh, this question is for both Tahira and for Beth, and you guys can rock, paper, scissor on who answers first. Um, <laughs> you know, you, there should be four panelists. Sadly, our William Simpson, who's the CEO of Golden Leaf, couldn't join us. Um, but you would see two women and two men, now you see two women and one man on a panel. You are um, two of the, the smartest people in cannabis. It seems like cannabis generally has been more welcoming to women in roles of leadership um, you know, than other industries. You don't see the same level or the same number of people, same number of women in either 
C-suite or board positions as you do in this industry. Um, can you guys talk about how you received on Wall Street um, as you guys are in the, 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 whether you're talking to current investors or you're in the process of raising money, what is the reaction from a, a women's perspective or is it just completely irrelevant? Do you want to do you want to go first? I'll let you go. Okay. Um, I've always worked in in a male dominated industry, so I, I've always felt very comfortable. Um, I've never felt as if my gender was something that that held me back in any way. Um, and you know, I think frankly, it differentiates us. I mean, we're we're two C-suite. Um, uh, you know, level uh, executives on public companies, and I don't know that there are that many other um, at, at those levels. However, there are a lot of women in the business. I'd personally love to see more women, um, you know, promoted to C-suite level positions. Yeah, I also, I come from non-cannabis finance world, so working in male-dominated environments is kind of, you know, what I've always been used to. Um, often also working in environments that lack like ethnic diversity. So that's just kind of, I think, par for the course. Cannabis has obviously shifted in the last couple of years too as it's become more mainstream and there's a higher risk tolerance for people to get into it from a lot of you know, banking, venture, just venture capital, more traditional companies. Um, so you've seen that shift. Uh, so it looks a lot like other industries that I think I'm fairly used to. Um, to Beth's point, I don't see a lot of women uh, at leadership levels, um, in, in my opinion, I'm usually the only woman at at, at the table. Me too. Um, usually, okay. So, the so only what you're saying is I'm just color. completely wrong in, in the thesis of my question. I think that there question. are. You're right in some regards, in that you know when you think a couple of years ago, it was kind of a fresh slate for everybody. You know, there was everybody could start companies, mm -hmm. and you know, it was a very entrepreneurial mindset. It still is, but now when you think of where traditional capital comes from. It's the same thing that influenced tech. It's the same thing that's starting to influence cannabis. You're seeing it come from Wall Street, from venture capital, from private equity, and those tend to be largely male-dominated. So I, I think I see a little bit more of that, but you know, I, I, there is definitely an opportunity because it is all new, but I think I'm starting, I'm starting to see a lot of the similar trends that I saw in finance. I, oh, I was just gonna say, one thing that I, that I would add on is I've been in the industry since 2012, and e even the product mix, um, you know, was was really geared toward men. And if you look at the stats, you know, women and men smoke as much marijuana um, as each other. So, so you know, really, we've focused uh, our efforts on on you really bringing some products yeah. for for women. Absolutely. And Lewis, what I was going to say that, and where you're right is that the, there has been. Um, an influx, I think, of women on the leadership side when it comes to product companies because mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. looking for products that actually serve their demographic, right? So trying to create that diversity and that you see yourself when you see these products. Um, and that's starting to shift. I think there was a stat at a panel a couple weeks ago um, from MJ Freeway that they noticed in some of their data that in Florida, the largest demographic of buyers, and I think you may have been there, so correct me. Yep. I think it was women between the ages of 50 and 60 who are the highest... They're the, they're the fastest growing fastest, new users yeah, in, in the industry. In Florida. And so, you know, that's really information, interesting information. So as the products shift to actually serve those demographics that have traditionally not been served by the um, illegal market, mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of female leadership is coming in. Chris, you were going to jump in. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of, like, mansplaining the female question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> uh, no, I wanted to make an observation. Again, if you go back to the, ro the road show I did a couple of weeks ago, and I think this is more an indictment of the sort of the Wall Street, Bay Street, the Canadian Wall Street. I just learned this myself. Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah. the Wall Street, Bay Street culture than it is of cannabis, but it reflects on <coughs> the ability, I think, of female-owned businesses to raise money. As I mentioned, we, I was part of, I think it was 26 meetings in four days is probably a total of 50 or so, you know, give or take investors in all of those meetings, not one woman, not one. Wow. Um, and three people of color. Um, the only women that we interacted with uh, during this whole excursion was actually the week before when we had to pitch the sales desks of a couple of, uh, a couple of banks that we're working with. And there are women on the sales desk, um, so they can have investor clients, right? They'll let them go out and have clients and maintain those relationships, but not one in the amongst the actual investors. Mm -hmm. like, I you know I turn to my partners who are sort of, you know who, who have Wall Street backgrounds. I, I come from the policy world, so it's a little bit different from him and learning the business side of it. And kind of made this made this observation. I think it was after our second day, we still had two more days. It was like, oh yeah, that's Wall Street. 
Um, and mm. I mean, I can, I, you know, I can only imagine being somebody who, obviously, I'm a white male, um, but it's still somewhat intimidating for me to go into these meetings with all these Wall Street investor types. It's not my world. I can only imagine what it's like being a woman or a woman of color stepping into meeting after meeting after meeting and not ever seeing somebody that looks like you across the table. I really think it, 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 it has to make this a lot more difficult for female-led businesses to get access to funding when they're not able to interact with people who look like them. So the, the amount of money that is flowing into the industry now is just overwhelming, right? You saw Constellation put $4 billion into Canopy uh, uh, you know, a month or so ago. Um, and this industry has historically, and I kind of laugh at the word historically, um, because it's, you know, we're, it's 2018, 2012 was like the first adult use state, so it's six, seven years in total. Math is not my strength. Um, but... but the amount of money that is coming into it now is massive, hundreds of millions of dollars, and companies that have billions of dollars of valuation. Is it too late for an entrepreneur to, to really start, or can they do it on a shoestring, or, or are we in the third or fourth inning and they are just blocked? I would say that on the dispensary side is, is you know, kind of the cheapest, um, you know, dispensary or laboratory, you know, would be the cheapest to get up and running. You know, the cultivations end up, indoor cultivations, we spend, um, you know, upwards of $250 a square foot to retrofit a building. So, you know, you're looking at, you're looking at a 30,000 square foot building that you're going to spend 10 to $12 million on when, you're, when it's all said and done. So. I'm glad you did that calculation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so I would say the cultivation side is, and it, by the way, it's my least favorite and most challenging side of the industry. Um, and, uh, and then the production side of things, um, you know, I would say is probably in the middle of um, the dispensary and, and, and cultivation. You know, the equipment, uh, extraction equipment is expensive and it's becoming a lot more sophisticated now. The states are actually also putting in many more regulations. Um, for example, if you're going to do hydrocarbon extraction, most every state, um, other than Arizona that we operate in, requires a C1D1 room, uh, which is an explosion-proof room. So, um, yeah, these are uh, yeah, we definitely need those. Um, and uh, you know, so so those are the things. And and I think as regulation continues to get tighter and tighter, like what what we do is is we operate currently in four states. So Nevada is is by far my toughest state to operate in. Hmm. Um, and Why? Uh, you know, they know how to regulate highly regulated businesses. They've been doing it forever, from gambling to prostitution to everything else. And so we operate at that level in all of our states just because we know that's where it's going. So Tahira, what do you think? Is it too late for the little guy? No, I think it just depends on what vertical you're trying to operate in. I mean, again, kind of going back to the U.S. has this really unique ecosystem of businesses that operate only in the U.S. or can, they'll be spreading, a lot of them have spread across the globe as needed, but because we're in a federally illegal environment, you have all of these different uh, products, services, platforms that are out there. So I think it's really understanding where is there still a gap if it mm -hmm. exists, or is there a product that's serving the market that isn't totally serving it? Um, finding that right gap and then being able to create something in that space. I think creating another cultivator in a state that already has a lot of cultivation, you know, it's very expensive anyways, there are a lot of licenses, um, creating another vape pen product in the masses of the mm. brands now, right? So they're just, there are crowded spaces. Four years ago, three years ago, maybe even two years ago, I wouldn't have said that about especially brands and those types of products, but now there are a ton and there's like CBD and everything and you can't tell the difference. And well, so I think you, it's really You actually launched one of the, the national brands, right? I mean, yeah. that was your background. So why don't yeah. you take a moment and explain that? Uh, sure, so I uh, started off working in cannabis uh, with Privateer Holdings and through them built uh, the brand Marley Natural, which is a partnership with Bob Marley's family. So it was one of the first and kind of earliest brands that was prepackaged in the cannabis space that kind of didn't exist in a lot of markets, particularly when you think about the California market. Um, but also just thinking of a brand that was national. We had multiple product categories. Um, so we had cannabis, uh, and then we also had accessories and body care, which was hemp seed oil that was in more mainstream retailers. So trying to create a multi-faceted um, brand that could operate inside and outside of the dispensaries. 
So Chris, you come out of advocacy, right? Your background is not commerce, and I, I will give you mad props in that um, I think you have done among the best, if not the best job, in making that transition from being an advocate to being um, an operator. Um, but they, you know, if you look at the industry right now, it, you know, some estimates are that it's a $75 billion current industry. Some say it's $100 billion. It's a split, but the, the licit side of it, the legal side of it, is tiny. How, for, 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 for operators that are trying to make the transition from the illicit to the licit side, and having to figure out how to do this in a regulated way, having to figure out how to raise money, is there any lessons that you can give them to, hey guys, here's the stumbling block that you cannot imagine that's coming up? Like what can you, what kind of, can you give them? I know this is off script, but I think yeah. it, it fits. Uh, I mean, it's premise, I, I didn't come from the illicit side. I, know. I came from the policy side. Um, so I'm one of the few people that's been involved in marijuana since before there was an industry that never actually sold marijuana illegally. Um, <laughs> so I don't have firsthand experience in making that transition. Um, but it's, I mean, it's really challenging. You, you have to be ready to, uh, to, to do things under really robust and rigorous regulations, and that's just not mm -hmm. how things operate in the, uh, in the illicit industry. Um, and I think that, you know, that's challenging. So you need to, I mean, you need to lawyer up, uh, right? And I don't mean that in like the criminal way, but you need to have good lawyers around you to make sure you have good operating agreements, that you have good applications, that you can, you know, comply, that you're complying with all local regulations. You know, a lot of, it, it's, it's a challenge, I think, for some folks. There's some people who've done really well sort of managing a business in the illicit industry, but, you know, they've never had to deal with regulators. They've never had to, you know, deal with P&Ls and spreadsheets taxes. and taxes and all these other things. And so there's, there's a pretty big learning curve there if you're coming just from the illicit industry into the legal industry. It's actually, I think, one of the reasons why we haven't seen a ton of people make that transition successfully. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, one thing I would suggest is, bring in a partner who has really good experience in the finance world or in the regulated business world. Um, you, know, you can run the cannabis side of the business, but it, it, I, you know, unless you came out of the business world and then went into cannabis and now you're coming back, um, you're going to be really well served to partner with somebody that understands it. I mean, I speak from experience there. Again, I didn't come from the listed industry, but I did come from the policy world and I didn't have that business experience. And I don't think that I would be where I am or my company would be where we are if I didn't have partners who had that kind of experience and we didn't build a team around, uh, around me that has mm -hmm. those, you know, both the day-to-day -day experience on the finance side as well as on the direct operations side in the, in the business world. And, and I would add on to that, um, and, and I think, Chris, because we operate in some of the same states, that um, Early on, these the, the lawyers didn't know what they were doing. Right. Also, yeah. so it was, it, like it cannabis was defense uh, attorneys yeah. who all yeah. of a sudden became cannabis business lawyers. Uh, and 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 one of my main lawyers is here, and I'm not discuss. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> You're doing great. It was, it was um, you know, think about 2012. You know, in in Arizona, for example, because we were both there. I mean, these there there ended up being so many lawsuits because the lawyers did not know what they were doing. They were. You know, the, the, the licenses were non-for-profit, so they had to be managed by management companies. Nobody really knew how the state uh, was, was going to accept these management companies and, you know, changing the, a, a non-for-profit, as you all probably know, can't be owned. It actually has to be managed, so you can change the, you know, you could change the board of directors. Um, but you can't technically sell it. So there, there's a lot of different nuances that I, I would definitely say lawyer up for sure, and um, Steve Len is a very good lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for when we were building Mario Natural, which started in 2014, uh, one, like one of my first hires for that brand, and, and Privateer has a fairly large legal team that was really focused on trying to make sense of the lack of law and the gray that exists, and it still does exist. There's, there's a lot that's kind of been sorted out. Now we have a little bit more like case law around it and just situations that you can point a finger to, um, but we didn't have that then. And so we were just kind of making it up and kind of inching along saying like, let's try this, see if our hand gets slapped, then we'll you know, do something else. But it was a lot of just legal opinion, making sure that you at least passed it by someone. I mean, everything from language that went on our packaging to like what went on our website, just like every little thing we passed through a lawyer. Um, because you kind of need that protection, and I, I, think, I don't think that's any different today, particularly in the environment that we work in in the U.S. So let's get back to the capital markets for a second. Um, we're about two and a half weeks away from October 17th, which is, if, if everybody doesn't know what that is, it's the big day where adult use goes legal in Canada, right? Um, and the Canadian markets, the Canadian public companies, the, the Tilrays, the Auroras, the, the Canopies, 
have these out crazy valuations, right? They are not related in seemingly any way to actual operations. It's all a bet on the come. Has this, do you guys think, two, I have two questions here. One, do you think um, that this, the 17th has been priced into these stocks? And what impact will the 17th have on you guys? Mm. I mean, I can start. I, I do think the price is baked into the stocks, but you know, then again, I wouldn't have expected most of these stocks to rise the way right. they have. So maybe yeah. you see another, you know, maybe you see another, see another boost bump. after the 17th. Mm -hmm. it's all, I mean, it's all just based on speculation anyway. It's not based on actual metrics. Um, yeah. So yeah, you might see another bump, but I, I do think it's largely priced in. Yep. Um, and even then, you, you can't, you can't justify the valuations that the Canadian that, that a lot of these Canadian LPs have just based on legalization in Canada. There's only 35 million people in Canada, um, right? They're 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 basing this on these companies are going to dominate the global market and export right. into these other. You, you can't you can't get to a 20 billion dollar valuation thinking that the company is only going to be active in in Canada. Um, there's there's probably not 20 billion dollars worth of sales in Canada, period, <laughs> um, let alone for one company. Um, so I, I do think it's largely baked in. I'd be interested to get the thoughts from the other panelists. As far as how it's going to impact my company, I, I don't know. Um, I don't think it'll have a huge impact on us because we're not active in Canada. Um, all of our assets in the U.S., all of our businesses in the U.S. Um, so as far as a, you know, a major G7 country legalizing marijuana officially for the first time might sort of, you know, might be a rising tide raises all ships type of deal. So all Stocks, whether they're, you know, they have Canadian assets or not, might see a boost because of it, but um, it won't have any direct impact on our bottom line or our business. How about you, Tier? What do you think? Uh, you know, I would love to say that the retail market understands now all the market dynamics and everything's priced in, but I don't believe that to be the case at all, um, based on the way that stock prices have moved, particularly in the last couple of weeks. So I do think there's going to be a, a potential, uh, like, just unfathomable rise in prices because of the excitement around it and where that settles I'm not sure I mean you know where some of the stocks trade right now if you actually sit there and like do the math and, and look at everything they don't make any sense but that's just the environment we're in right now because there's a lot of it's a momentum trade at this point um, and until there's something in the market to say no this is wrong I don't see us retreating. Um, I'd like us to because I think that things should get to a point. I don't. I have this fear of, of a bubble being created, and I think we're already in that process. And I don't want it to have a negative impact on all the businesses, which is what happens in bubbles, right? Somebody does something wrong, two people do something wrong, the whole market suffers. And we're so early that I, I would hate to see that happen, especially as all these other businesses go public. Um, but you know, to Chris's point, it, it could rise, make everybody rise together, and that's kind of where they stay. So I, I do expect that just from the excitement that there will be another bump, and then we'll kind of see where that settles. I think a lot of, I've heard a lot of speculation around as well, the impact that um, elections in November could have, depending on what different um, people come and go. And you know, I think that'll be a telling signal as well. In January, nobody knew that Jeff Sessions was gonna come out and say what he did, and, but we still saw a stock. We saw a plummet very briefly, and then and we then saw a rebound. rally. Yeah. And everybody was back to business as usual. So, and what you're re referring to is a repeal of the coal memory. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, I, you know, I would love to sit here and predict, but everything that's happened so far, I've been wrong about. So, so what, don't trust yeah, me for stock. You're, you're one of the few companies that that actually trades in Canada and has, you know, feet. So, what do you think is going to happen on the 17th? Oh, I wish. Other I had, than that, it's a shit show. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, you know, I, I do I do agree that that I think that we are going to see an additional bump. Um, you know, I think there's going to be more excitement, but I worry about the same things that that you do. That you know, because um, I, I I live through the internet, you know, boom and bust, um, and uh, you know I think that there's going to be a lot of M and A going on. I think that you know we're seeing the companies that are. Um, you know, north of a billion dollars getting, you know, much higher multiples, whether it's on top line sales, cash flow, EBITDA. Um, it seems like everybody wants to go, you know, with the big guys. And I think it's going to be really interesting this fall because um, it's, a pr it's a pretty small industry, so most of us really know each other. And there are so many uh, TROs of great companies that, that, that are going... Uh, uh, go, are going to go out just like Chris's company. 
Did I say T R O? R T O. R T O. I was like, what is that? It's not a temporary restraining order. I'm like, oh, I've had to get that. Yes, thankfully. If you could speak to just this concept of the bubble, because I think it's important. I mean, there's a couple things I want to say about that. Number one is if you want to if you want to limit your sort of your downside liability a little bit on it, I would look for companies that aren't overvalued today. Mm-hmm. Um, right, there are some companies that are pricing themselves much more reasonably than than others who are just, you know who are most of whom I think are, are resting more on relative valuations. Well, well that's um, a lot of the American companies, right? I mean, it's it's everybody. Yeah. Um, but yes, but but you know I would look at com- I would look for companies that are that are. You, trying to base themselves in actual valuations, we're really looking out for their investors who have come in in every round, um, not just trying to take advantage of this exuberance because those ones are likely to fall more. Um, but all that said, I mean, even if we are in a bubble, and we probably are, um, right? If you look back, because this is all again, it's mm-hmm. all based on speculation. It's not based on metrics, and eventually, this is going to have to be based on actual metrics, um, right? When there are real right. metrics, it's going to come back to that, and it's not going to be based on speculation. And so, if you look at what happens with the internet bubble, right? That was the same thing, right? In the mm-hmm. early days, nobody really knew how these companies were going to get capitalized. It was all, you know, it was all speculation on who's going to wind up dominating the internet. And you know, eventually, you started getting around to metrics, and there was a huge, you know, there was a burst or a massive contraction. But I think the important thing to 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 remember from that is that while there were lots of, you know, Pets.com type companies, right, that had these massive valuations and ended up losing all their investors' money, there also was Yahoo and Google and Amazon and Apple, right? All of those were around during the mm-hmm. uh, internet bubble. They all saw contraction in their values when the bubble burst. They're all now worth way more mm-hmm. than they were at the height of that bubble. And so ultimately what it comes down to is actual ability to execute, um, right? Right now it's all speculation, but eventually these companies have to be able to execute well. Um, and I think you know there are companies out there. When I survey the American landscape, um, there are companies. I won't name names, right? But there are there are no, there no, are companies no, no. out name there. Names. I'm not <laughs> not going to do that here. But there are plenty of companies out there that are doing a really good job in what they call the land grab, and they're they're gobbling up license here, license there, license there, mm-hmm. all right? And they're really good at, at creating these license portfolios. But I don't think they put a whole lot of time into thinking about how do we execute this. Uh, in a way that is sustainable, in a way that's replicable, where you know, mm-hmm. you've got a portfolio of one brand here, one brand here, one brand here, one brand here. Well, eventually, you've got to bring that all into one brand if mm-hmm. you want to be a real national company. Um, and if you haven't spent a lot of time building SOPs, building operations protocols, building really good brands, and you're spending all of your time just on the roll-up, like, that kind of expansion is really difficult. And you look at like, the restaurant world, for example. It's, 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 it's hard enough to run one really good restaurant or one really good retail store. It's way harder to take that to your second store and third store and make sure that those are being run the exact same way. Mm-hmm. The experience is exactly the same from store to store to store. Right? The culture is the same from store to store to store. And eventually that stuff's really going to matter. So I would look at, you know, look at the management teams and look at what they're doing in terms of actually building a sustainable business rather than just executing a land grab is eventually, I think that's going to be really challenging for some of these folks. So I, I'm going to have one more question and then I'll open it up to you guys for questions. Um, so I mentioned earlier the, the infusion of $4 billion into canopy growth, right? Um, and if you look at that just pile of money, it is more than the complete market cap of all of the public U.S. companies. I mean, Bruce Linton, if he was able to, it is. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. And Medman's worth like $2 billion alone right now. Yeah, but yeah. you add up everybody else and it's still, yeah. you're close. All right, close, let's say yeah. it's close. How about that? He could <laughs> yeah. come down that's here and difference. buy yeah. Right? Yeah. pretty much whoever he wants, mm-hmm. if he was allowed to, right? So there have been some big high-profile M&A deals that have taken place, and probably the biggest one was the, the, the purchase of, of uh, Aurora, of, of uh, med relief. It was about mm-hmm. a $2 billion deal. Um, and Beth, you said that you think that there's going to be a, a wave of consolidation coming this fall. I do. Um, why don't you guys talk about that? Like, you guys are all in the capital markets, you, or Chris will be, but you've raised a lot of money. What does this look like? Who wins? Um, I think I think it's going to be a race to get very big, certainly over that billion dollar mark. Um, and uh, I think that there's a lot. Everybody's talking to everybody. Just put it that way, without um, you know, w- you know, without going any further than that. Because um, I'm a public company officer, and my lawyer's here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, everybody's talking to everybody, and I think that the smart players are going to realize that making onesie twosie acquisitions is just not going to get you there fast enough. 
Yeah, I mean, our whole thesis for the SPAC is M&A in that the, that's kind of the future of the industry, particularly when you look on the services side of the business and the non-plant touching side of the business. Um, scale matters. Scale, speed to scale also matters. Uh, being able to operate in markets outside of the US will matter. And so our whole thesis was, what's a really strong company that we can put as an anchor in this uh, in the SPAC that can then go on and do more M&A to offer more robust services that can um, that are synergistic with each other, that makes sense for companies. You know, so when you think about putting software with payroll, with CRM, you know, all of that kind of stuff, it fits together in a very natural way. And a larger company, right now most companies do one of those things. They service a very specific set, and that's hard enough. But being able to create a larger platform with more services reduces your costs, allows you to expand faster. And so M&A has been kind of the core of our strategy for this um, for this SPAC uh, the whole time. And I think it also applies to plant touching businesses because it is it does become a scaling factor over time. And really, it's also, it's not just about size, but it's about cost reduction, right? Getting to efficiencies. In the US, it's really hard to get your economies of scale because you're operating on a state-by-state -state basis. Just mm -hmm. the same things that you can't, that you would just do in normal consumer packaged goods, like shipping things from one location everywhere, you can't do that here. And so you have to think of, you're replicating costs all over the place, headcount, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And um, that's why M&A is gonna matter in the future to be able to reduce some of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all this. I think when you look at, when, when I look at the landscape of what's going on in the US right now, um, I think we're in, what'll, what'll, when we look back on this, will be sort of referred to as the first stage of consolidation. And this is more the onesie twosie uh, right, acquisitions mm -hmm. that are going on because the big players can't come into the U.S., right? Either the big Canadian LPs, the canopies or, or whatever can't really play here yet. Mm -hmm. And certainly the big alcohol tobacco companies, right, the other potential um, you know, large-scale acquirers can't play in the U.S. right now. So what you're seeing are companies uh, you know, like Acreage uh, and, and uh, MedMen and, and, and I mean a whole handful of others. Right? I mean we're involved in this a little, a little, a little bit more of a targeted basis, but um, that are you know that are that are buying up individual licenses mm -hmm. around the country and really building a footprint in the U.S. Once these walls of interstate commerce start coming down, and once there's a major change at the federal level, then I think we start seeing the the major second wave of acquisition, which is all being set up right now. Right? That's why. Canopy put $4 billion into, uh, you know, or, or, or Constellation put $4 billion into, into Canopy. The Canopy's not going to exist next year, right? It's going to be part of Constellation, uh, right? That's their entry into going in and, and, and doing more roll-ups. And you're seeing, you know, Molson Coors is, is, is getting involved mm -hmm. in this. And they're all starting to do this in Canada first. So when those walls come down in the U.S., those big acquirers, right, the really, the really big folks who are already, you know, who are already out there, right, outside mm -hmm. of cannabis, they're not going to want to do the onesie twosie acquisitions, right? right? They're not going to be looking for, you know, dispensary, and, and one, one dispensary here, one dispensary there, right? One grower here, one product. They're going to want to buy the multi-state operators. So I think what the, the, the acquisition wave you're seeing right now are the companies that are setting themselves up to likely be acquired in the next wave in much bigger scale acquisitions mm -hmm. than we can see today in the U.S. An interesting call that I've gotten in, you know, the last 30 days um, was, uh, you know, a friend of a friend actually uh, was bidding on a consulting project, and it was through an attorney, and um, uh, they did not know who the client was going to be. Their thought was that it was big tobacco, but they were not sure. They ended up winning the consulting business and asked if I would be an SME, and I didn't know what an SME was, but it was a subject matter expert for them in the industry, and they were doing a very specific product, uh, project for uh, a very large U.S. company. Okay, your turn. Anybody have any questions? Go ahead. Actually, can I ask you to come up to the mic so that, do you mind? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've got five minutes. Go. So we represent, is this on? Yeah, it's on. So we represent a non-plant touching financial services company, a workers' compensation insurance company, not a brokerage, a car dealership. We are the car manufacturer. We're the risk-bearing entity. And uh, we have a group of, of folks that I've known for 28 years in this space, but we're not so sophisticated when it comes to raising capital. Um, my joke is um, we went to a couple of investment banks and asked for $10 million, and they said, great, give us $100,000. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
any uh, advice? No hook, I promise. And, you know, Privateer was not one of the companies that we approached at that time. And for us, culturally, and what we believe in, uh, which is the plant, uh, who our investor is means a lot to us as well. Um, my question is twofold. First of all, any advice on um, raising $10 million? And second of all, um, how important is it that there's a cultural fit between yourself and your investor? Thank you. Well, Chris, you're actually, I, you start because you're doing a roadshow now. So you want to talk, talk a little Whatever bit about that? <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, in terms of how to raise $10 million. Not I mean, the how-to. I mean, I think yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a, a side Canada. But, but the cultural the fit. <laughs> yeah. um, but the cultural fit, I think, is an interesting the question. The cultural fit, I think, is actually quite important. Um, mm -hmm. Now, it depends, right? If you're having somebody who's going to come in for $50,000 of that $10 million, right, they probably don't need to be a great cultural fit because you're not going to have to deal with them all that often. Um, <laughs> right? But, if somebody, but, but even then, you, you might. Um, but if somebody's putting in a, a significant chunk of that and they want to have involvement in the company in some, in some respect, I think uh, having a cultural fit there is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's a re you know, really, and, and it's hard, right? Because it's a, it's a hard industry to raise money in, and so it's hard to turn away money if you feel like, wow, this, is like, this, this might go bad uh, down the road. I don't know if it can work well with this person. But you need to really think through that. If you're taking somebody's money, you're, you're kind of getting in bed with them, uh, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, you, and you're, you, you're going to account have to be accountable to them for... You know, quite a long time. So, I, it, it, and make sure you're, you know, everything is really, really, really well contracted, right? Because this is where lawsuits come from. You don't want to have to spend, you know, another million bucks fighting them in a lawsuit because you guys couldn't get along. And, and yeah, we've and, got a know, great legal counsel with the operating agreement and the MIPAs and stuff like that. Um, to hear as it relates to privateer, I noticed that uh, they have, and I don't know if you can speak to them directly, but I noticed they have a website and you go to their website and you put in your, uh, your, your URL and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, haven't heard back from them yet. <laughs> I'm wondering if, uh, you know, what's the number? You get 30 deals a week and of those you really think one of them might be uh, so. I mean, it's been it's been several years since I've worked there, so I can't tell you what the process is now. But I mean, we were on the I was one of two people who dealt with all of the inbound requests and evaluate everything. And it wasn't 30 a week; it was hundreds a week. Um, uh, and probably with the growth of Privateer and and the publicity, that's probably increased. So. Um, you know, I think that they're also, you know, it, it may not specifically be about uh, that it's a good plan or a bad plan. It might be just what their strategy is right now, which I, I couldn't tell you what their strategy is as far as investing in companies. But my hunch is just from public information that I know, it's much more uh, consumer brand focused and probably patient as opposed to services. Um, and I think that when you're thinking about investors as well, you know, it sounds like you're, you're going to these banks and they're not probably the right group. But when you're looking at investors, it's what have they already invested in? What are they interested in? Is this the type of business that would, would resonate with their strategy? Right? So not all investors aren't just going to look at everything. And some may. But you'll find that there are different verticals of investors who either look at plant touching only, I believe much more in services, you know, are just looking at the experience of the management team. So understanding who those people are and targeting your pitch to them so it resonates with them, I think is really important. And maybe that's, it's not one pitch fits all. So yeah. Steve, I, I know you had a question. Thank you. You're welcome. You guys spoke very articulately about the market dynamics and the enterprise dynamics going on. I was curious because all those enterprises ultimately show valuations grounded in their ability to generate revenue, right, to attract consumer interest. I'd be curious for each of you if there's, from the consumer side, one consumer pain point that you don't see enterprises addressing well. Maybe you could start it, Chris. I'm Go to bed. So, you know, I might not have understood the question fully. Um, could you just repeat the answer? So, you're saying, is there, where is there still opportunity? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. What? You see so much on the enterprise side. Where, if you were on the consumer side looking back at the enterprise, how you say, here holds. I haven't seen anyone address this well. Uh, for me, um, I don't think there's anybody in the industry that likes their POS system, which is a really, <laughs> really important, you know, we joke and I'm like, who are you on? Are you on MJ? Oh, I'm on Atalyst. I'm, someone's on Biotrack. And everybody hates them all for different reasons. Um, there's a couple of new companies that, that have popped up. I mean, I know 
in Maryland, we're, we're using a company called Leaf Logics, and I'm just going to see how it goes, um, you know, with them. And uh, so I would say that that's definitely an area where, where operators like us are, are frustrated. Um, and, and I'm sure that there are, you know, groups that are, are you know, going after that market, but it, it's definitely a hole that I see. Um, I think on, you know, I, I agree with that, that on the, the services side for cultivators for retail, it's been difficult to um, get a product that works 100%. But I think what we also have to think about that we're still early in the market and that, you know, we're not, we're not to the point yet where we have like oracles that service the market. And it took those types of companies quite some time to get there. And Definitely. so we're in that decades yeah, to get there. You know, so we're in this painful period right now, which where everybody's like, it's been years, but it's like, it's been four years, right? So <laughs> it might take like five more, unfortunately. So I think that there, there's continuous room for innovation there, absolutely. I think on the product side, um, I still think that there are some demographics that are underserved. I think like the aging populations, the elderly community, I think there's a huge opportunity from a wellness perspective um, that we're not addressing because it's not sexy and it's not cool. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the benefit there could be massive. So you're talking about CBD infused adult diapers? <laughs> Did not say that. But <laughs> no, 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 I said that. Okay, just I want to make sure you get credit for that. I did not. Yes. It's, a dad, it's a bad dad joke and that's what my forte is. So. <laughs> Um, and Chris, what about you? Do you think, what, where's, where's there a hole that has yet to be filled? I mean, there's way too few people of color in the industry right now. And I think that, 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 that impacts you know, products that serve, that, that serve underserved, that need to be out there that serve underserved markets. If you don't have people from these communities that are running these businesses, and particularly on the product side of things and, mm -hmm. on the, and then on the retail side of things, right? You don't have people that can best service their communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, and you get on my activist high horse for a second, um, you know, Communities of color in the United States have overwhelmingly bore the brunt of cannabis prohibition um, and cannabis law enforcement. And if ultimately, and in, in particularly some, you know, some inner city communities uh, that are economically depressed, the, the, the cannabis industry, the illicit cannabis industry has provided one of the only real revenue streams for, for employment um, and, for, and for, for jobs in a lot mm -hmm. of these communities. And so if we're taking that away um, and we're saying now it's okay for people to go out and make money off of these, off of these businesses, and we don't include those people who have been most impacted by prohibition, then we haven't done a very good job of ending prohibition. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, there's downstream market impacts as well, again, because there, there are going to be products that are created to serve certain communities that can't be created unless those communities are in the, are in the boardroom, are, are, are in ownership. And so I look at things like what's going on with the social equity program in Massachusetts, uh, the conversations that are being had around how this gets addressed in places like New Jersey, um, in Illinois, this is a big topic of conversation now uh, where they're debating a legalization bill for next year. Um, and so I would look at these as things that are you know, not just the right thing to do from a social justice perspective, but also uh, will help fill gaps in the market that need filling. That's a, so I wish there was more time, but the lady in the back's got the one up, which means um, I think we're done. But I want to really thank uh, the panelists. Um, They're all be floating around. They're all really nice people. They're really approachable. Um, I'm not, but other than them, you know. <laughs> thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.